but there's still things that he must do in order to secure the promise of God to his family. Here's the thing, death is coming, but so is, should have thought this through. I have a very PowerPoint heavy presentation. Uh Oh, Oh, maybe it's like this. Nope, I could have sworn. All right, death is coming, yet God is also coming at the same time. Right, so we understand that Joseph, that Jacob is not fearing death. You know, how do we understand this? We understand this by reading the scriptures. So turn with me to the next few verses. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me in Luz, that is, in the land of Canaan, and blessed me. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you of you a company of peoples that will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. Now, and now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, dare are mine. Dare mine. <laughs> Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine, as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan, on the way when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons, whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may see that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face, and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees, and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's hand, and Manasseh in his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God has been, who has been my shepherd all my life, uh, long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now what is the blessing that it, uh, Israel is blessing them with. Here's the thing. We have to understand what Israel, who Israel is. The blessing that he's giving to these people, the, his grandsons in particular, is the blessing that God had already given to him. Originally, it was not a blessing that was meant for him. It was supposed to be for the firstborn, his brother Esau. But he stole that firstborn right from Esau, yet God still blessed him. Because, you see, Israel was able to wrestle with God. Israel was able to, you know, 
be with God and still be able to understand that even though he's a sinner, even though he's a person who did wrong, God is still willing to bless him, but only if he really wanted to do so. So I'll talk about that a little bit later. I want to talk about first what, what it really means to have a name. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about something really important that might change your lives, because I'm not so sure that many people in life really understand this, you know, the importance of a name. The thing is, is that your name is your own private possession. Your name is your own private possession. It's the thing that, you know, belongs to you and you alone. It's the thing that could be the most important thing that you could ever own. A private possession is kind of like, you know, your own phone or maybe your own, uh, your own room or really that's like a, a shared room. You know, if you, if you live in an Asian household, you know, your mom just barges in. It's, like, it's a shared community room. But, you know, and, you know, your, your own stuff, right? But it's really your name that people should not be able to take from you unless you give it away to another person, which you, shouldn't, you really shouldn't do. The thing about names is that whenever someone attacks your name, whenever someone you know, talks badly about your name, like they say, oh, Derek, oh, he's a terrible person, they're actually damaging your private property. They're damaging your reputation, the thing that matters the most to you. Because the thing is, is about our names, whoops, a little bit too far. The thing is about our names is that they relate ourselves to the broader world, to the community. So imagine this, right? You're, you're writing a book and you put your name on it and you put it out into the world. The way that people associate you with now is you, your name, and the book, right? They understand that you wrote this book because you have your name on it. Also, like maybe say right now you want to go to the restroom, you know, but you don't want anyone to take your seat. So what do you do? You put your bag on the seat or you put something like a, like a jacket on your seat so that you hold it. Did you really change anything about the seat? Did it really become yours? Or has it become marked by you? Because here's the thing, right? That jacket belongs to you, but the chair does not belong to you. But since your jacket belongs to you and you put it on the seat, somehow everyone knows that that belongs to somebody now, right? If you go to a theater and you see a seat with a jacket on it, do you, do you really want to take it? I mean, you might if you're like, oh, that's a good seat. And I don't care if someone's already here. I don't care if they already marked it. I'm going to take that seat for myself. But usually, you know, people are good and they wouldn't do that sort of thing because we all understand what it means to mark something, right? So here's the thing. With God blessing Israel, God is now part of Israel's life, or really Jacob, Jacob's life, right? The person who was the deceiver, the person whose name meant usurper, which is, you know, to take away. He changes his name to he who wrestles with God. He who wrestles with God. This is a dynamic, dramatic change. Remember, our names are our most important possessions to us. They define us. They make us who we are. Your, your name up until now is how everyone has known you. Changing your name is a dramatic thing to do, even in our age, but especially during that age, because it does two specific things. It says that, you know, Jacob, you yourself now, all that in the past, is gone. But also from starting now, you know, I will be with you. You know, God, Israel has now received the blessing of God. 
God will protect him. God will see that you know, he, his family and his land will be reached out into the nations. He will be blessed. God has his eye on him. He's protecting him. But here's the other part of it. With God marking Israel, it's kind of like he's saying, this is my jacket. This is my jacket, right, on the seat. He's saying that by this thing, I will be known. So then every time you see that jacket, you might look at it and you might say, oh, it has a stain on it. Oh, that jacket, it's dirty. Or that jacket, you know, looks rich. It looks amazing. It also makes a mention of the owner. So not only does uh, God's blessing affect Israel, but also Israel's character and his actions and what he does affects God's name. It affects God's name. You know, you think God is untouchable? You know, you think God is, you know, he doesn't care about us? No, he cares about us so much that he would give his name to a person. Not only that, but his original name was Usurper. He's a person who, who, who steals his brother's birthright, and he tries to run away. He, he's scared of his brother. He doesn't want to go back. So then he, he runs away, and then there he, in running away, he meets God, and he wrestles with God because he's like, give me a blessing or else I'm going to die. So then he, he refuses to give up. And then, you know, God breaks his leg so he can no longer run. And you feel like that sometimes, like God breaks your legs. He closes every door behind you so you cannot escape, and then you have to face your consequences. He has to face his brother who he wronged. You know, sometimes in life, that's the hardest thing to do. When we know that our name is terrible, it is wrong, that we know our reputation is bad because we deserve you know, this sort of thing. We, we know that we're, you know, we, we have this guilt and we have this idea that we've done something wrong, right? But, you know, the hardest thing is not overcoming those things, but it's admitting that we did something wrong. To go back to the other person and ask for forgiveness. That's one of the hardest things for a human person to do. So, you know, here's the thing, right? Israel had this amazing experience, like many amazing experiences, says with God, in the wilderness, in running away, in wrestling with God. And he says it, you know, throughout these verses, like, I'm going to show to you right now. Oh, too much. All right. Like when he says in verse 15, and he blessed Joseph and said, the God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. He understands that this God has been with his family for a long generation, that he didn't deserve this blessing in the first place. He understands that this is a gift from God to him. It's not necessarily something that he has done. In fact, he doesn't even really deserve, or he never even tried to really work for it, but he understands that it is passed down, right? We, we talk a lot about generational privilege nowadays. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of that, or you know, gen generational money, right? So people, some people, you know, have, get blessings from their family. They get, uh, you know, maybe, you know, intelligence or some money or s something that uh, gives them more class and more status than other people. We talk a lot about privilege nowadays, but the understanding back then is that a lot of people are not privileged, and it's truly a blessing to be privileged. So, so Jacob is acknowledging his privilege. He is acknowledging that God has blessed him and his family and that he and his family really didn't deserve it in the first place. It's submission by Jacob. It's submission by Israel. Israel continues in verse 16, and he tells us that the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day and the angel who has redeemed me from all evil bless 
the boys. This is meaning that even though he didn't deserve it, you know, God still walked with him. And God still loved him. God still cared for him like he was family. He still understood that even though he was a terrible person, even though he made mistakes, even though he'd done all these things, God's still there for him. And the, the evil, the, 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 the angel has redeemed him from evil. It's, it's talking about how he was going to run away from his brother. He, he fought with God's angel. He wrestled with him. So he's using all these things, and he's trying to take all these blessings that he has had, and he's trying to give it to Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim, so his grandsons. Thing is, is that, you know, he can only bless them, and in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He gives them his name. Here's the thing, right? Israel, we know his story. He's an amazing guy. Jacob, some, some of us are named after Jacob, right? That's a name that we use all the time. But who's really named after Ephraim and Manasseh? And that's a, there's a reason for that. It's because Jacob is someone to be looked, out, uh, looked at with adoration. Manasseh and Ephraim, they're kind of like nobodies. How can they really receive the, the blessing of God, right? They're just kind of his grandsons. You know, Israel, Jacob, wrestled with God. Israel was there with God. He had this lived experience with God. He had this personal relationship with God. Manasseh, Ephraim, you guys are just his grandsons. You guys lived in Egypt. Your father, he was rich. He didn't have to wrestle with anything. You guys didn't have to wrestle with anything. Your father, you know, Joseph, you know, he had a hard time in Egypt. He was a slave. What about you guys? You guys were born uh, to the richest man in all of Egypt, maybe even the whole world. You know, you guys have everything for you. You guys never struggled. You guys never felt the burning uh, that, you know, Israel had felt, that Joseph had felt. Yet both of you are receiving the blessing. Here's the thing, right? Blessings come in two parts. The first part is in the name. So when they get the blessing in name, they're getting their grandfather's blessing but they don't get the blessing of the heart. Like I said before, think about the chair and the jacket. The jacket is yours, but the chair, you know, it's only associated to you because you're sitting on it or because the jacket was on it. Once you leave that theater, it's not your chair anymore, is it, right? It doesn't belong to you, you didn't buy it. Likewise with Israel, with, with Israel. Israel is the jacket. Israel has a close relationship with God. He, he, he's with God. He knows God personally. Yet Manasseh and Ephraim, they don't really know God. They're not really with God, yet they receive the blessing anyways because they're kind of like the chair. They're kind of associated with the guy who is, you know, associated with God. So here's the thing, right? As we continue reading, you know, we, we understand that you know, there's something wrong with this blessing. You know, Joseph is the first one to, to point it out. Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim. It displeased, it displeased him, and he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not this way, father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head, meaning Manasseh. Don't put your right hand on Ephraim, the younger brother. Put your right hand on Manasseh, the older brother, because that's how tradition is usually done. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. 
He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you, Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you, rather than to your brothers, one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. You know, if you really think about this, it's kind of like a joke. You know, if you think about it really cynically, right, because Israel, he has no real land. The only land that he has that he physically owns at this time is that mountain slope that he took. All the lands that he says that the people will possess is just God's promise. It's like a promised land. It's like, I promise that, you know, you'll get your money one day. You know, I promise you that, you know, I'll buy you a Tesla one day. It kind of feels like that. And then he's going to die. <laughs> it's like, hey, are you really going to give this to me or not? And, you know, Joseph, being who he is, he owns a lot of land in Egypt already. He's already really rich. Why does he really need all this? Why does he need more of this? The thing is, is that we have to understand that Jacob is doing this because he sees deeper than Joseph. He sees deeper into God's plans. He knows the hearts of the Egyptians. He knows that one day they're going to kick them out because they're not Egyptians. Already, there's already segregation, right? All of the Egyptians put the Hebrews, the Israelites, into the land of Goshen because they don't want to associate with them. They don't want to be a nation with them. They don't like these Hebrews. They don't like these different cultures. So eventually, once you know, Joseph dies and once all the generations are gone, they're probably going to be kicked out and they're going to need a home for themselves. So what Jacob is doing is that he's putting it into the future, the highest good. What is the most possible uh, best thing that could happen for my family is that they follow God, that God will be with them, and that they will also get the land and the blessing that God had promised me. Here's the thing. Jacob never received the promised land. Jacob never understood what it was like. You know, but here's the thing. The people that he blessed, the people that he gave the blessing to, Ephraim in specific, the younger brother, the person that he, he favored, you know, his descendants also turn away from God. I want to show you Ephraim's descendant, Jeroboam. Some of you might know him. Some of you might not. You know, this is you know, 1 Kings 14, verses 8 through, uh, 8 through 10. It's, a, it's extremely sad what happened to Jeroboam. You see, Jeroboam was a person who God really liked. He helped uh, King Solomon build the temple. He helped build the walls around Jerusalem. He was a person who is reliable. You can count on him. He was a hard worker. But once he became king, you know, God blessed him, and he said, you know, I'm going to give to you ten of the tribes. You know, you're in the tribe of Ephraim. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to honor you and give you the blessing, just like Israel said. But then Ephraim immediately, or, or Jeroboam immediately, his heart turned against God after he got the blessing. He became self-conscious. He started thinking to himself, ooh, man, the people are still going to worship God in Jerusalem, which is in the southern kingdom. You know, I can't let them do that. I'm going to erect for myself two uh, beautiful new idol 
temple worship places so that they can stay here and they can have their fun here so they don't have to go to Jerusalem and leave me. And that's what he was thinking. You know, God told him many times that you can't do this. You can't do this. He sent messenger after messenger. Instead, you know, Jeroboam just continued to ignore God and he eventually even declared war on Judah, on the southern, you know, in the southern tribes. And God eventually just told him, you know, and I, he, he tells him, through the prophet's words, and I tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been like my servant David, who kept my commandments and followed me with all his heart, doing only which was right in my eyes. But you have done evil above all, who were before you and have gone and made yourself other gods and metal images, provoking me in anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring harm upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male, both bond and free in Israel, and will burn up the house of Jeroboam as a man burns up dung until it is all gone. And God's comparing him to, you know, doggy doo-doo. So here's the thing, right? How come Ephraim, who receives the blessing of Israel, Israel, who, is, who received the blessing from Isaac, Isaac, who received the blessing from Abraham, all of these people, all of these blessings could not change Jeroboam's heart, could not change the heart of the people. It's because, you know, the, the only thing that they received was a blessing in name. They never received the heart. They weren't like Israel. They never wrestled with God. Instead, you know, the, the wealth and the blessings only passed down to them by blood lineage. They were passed down through name alone, right? So here's the thing, right? The big idea is that God wants to be with you in both name and in heart. So remember what we were talking about with name before, right? So with name, your world, everyone knows you by your name. Everyone knows God by his name. But is it, enough, is it enough to only know God by name? No. Because, you know, Jeroboam knew God by name. Jeroboam understood who God is by name. And he even received the blessing from God, not even curses, blessings from God in name. But the thing is, is that he never received the heart, the inner thing, the lived experience right? So maybe, you know, I could read this for us, you know, the name is the identity that is known by yourself and the rest of the world. It is marked by just the name. The heart is the identity that is known only by yourself and the object of love. It is marked by your lived experience and actions. So what does that all mean? You know, this is all philosophy, you know. I'm also like a, a philosophy minor in school, so I have to work with words, the thing is, is like, you know, I, I had a very interesting conversation with a friend of mine. He always said that one of his Asian friends says that, oh, I'm, I'm super white. I'm a super, I'm like a white guy. But here's the thing. Is he white? He doesn't have an ounce of European blood in him. He may act white. He may eat only American foods. But what does it mean to be white? In fact, what does it mean to be Asian American? What does it mean to be Asian American? 
I want you to think, aren't you, most of you Asian American, or aren't some of you, you know, at least if you're not Asian American, you can think what it's like to be an Asian American. It's hard to understand. It's hard to think about it because, you know, Asian American is just a named identity. But also at the same time, it is also a lived experience. Why? Because we live as a certain race. We live as a race of people. I myself live as an Asian American. I myself live like this. Or you, if you are white or if you're another nationality, maybe you don't even like the term Asian American because it was created uh, and not a real thing, right? It was created in the 19, like 60s or something. I think I have it here actually, 1968, to bring together a bunch of groups so that they can have political power. But here's the thing, right? There's a common culture between all of us. There's a common identity between us. There's a common idea of what it means to be Asian American. But not just the idea, but also the experiences that we have, the things that we all enjoy, the things that our you know, parents do in common, the thing that you know, we, maybe we speak Chinese or we speak a certain Asian language. So, so what does it mean to be more Asian than another person? How can we possibly say that? If it's just a name, if it's just a name, we can't say it, right? If, if Asian American is just like some obvious thing that marks us for our skin, then we can't possibly say that, you know, he is more Asian American than another person. But if we say that, hey, there's like a certain amount of experiences, there's a certain amount of ideas and beliefs and cultural identities or the way that the world looks at us that is specifically Asian American, then we can put that on. Then we can say, like, that's what it means to be Asian American. Maybe it's just drinking boba, or maybe it's just speaking a, a certain Asian language, or maybe it's just kind of doing, just kind of looking Asian American. You know, you could, you could do that, right? It's just with my friend's friend who says, like, you know, I really feel white. I don't really feel Asian American. But I suppose on the outside, the, how the world looks at me, how they understand me is, is Asian, is Asian American. Now, all these things, you know, we, we talk about in culture. We have a hard time relating with them. Maybe you're kind of like grossed out. You're like, oh, no, you know, we're, we're all, you know, one race. There is no Asian American. There is no, you know, there is no white. There is no black. And, you know, there's an, there's an argument for this. Here's the thing. It's not just with Asian Americans. It's, it's with every single idea, every single identity that you wrestle with, you know, whether that be straight or gay, male or female, or identifying as a student or not a student, or a scholar or not a scholar, a college student or not a college student, you know, a, a person who, who likes this or doesn't like this, there's levels to it because of our, how we live, how our heart feels, how we love these things. You know, I'm not saying this. I'm not trying to propagate some sort of ideology. I'm not trying to say that they're all equal or something. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that there are distinctions between the two. There's a distinction between the name and the lived experience. So you can be Asian American in name only if you have Asian American blood. That's usually what we do. Or, you know, you, you look Asian American. You know, these things are so combated in our culture. But here's the thing, there's a difference with lived experience, a personal relationship with being Asian. It's having Asian American parents. 
It's having, or not Asian American, but Asian parents, or being part of America, right? That's also another important thing. You can't be Asian American if you're not American, first and foremost, right? If you never lived in America. The thing is, is that oh, same with our relationship with God, right? Israel has both heart and name. He had that lived experience. He knows what it feels like to wrestle with God, and he has the name that God has given him. You know, he walked with God. Ephraim and Manasseh, they never did. You know, they, they didn't have the same heart that Israel had with God. So we, we struggle with this. You know, we struggle because we ask ourselves, you know, okay, maybe I believe in God in name. Maybe I believe in God you know, because you know, my parents uh, came to church or because you know, I go to church myself, therefore I'm a Christian. What does it mean to have heart as well? I'm going to turn to oops, Hebrews 11, verses 21 and 39 and 40. So if you want to turn with me, let's go to Hebrews 11, 21, 39 through 40. I think it's very applicable to us. So to those verses, or you, know, you can just read it from here. The author of Hebrews is trying to correlate, he's trying to bring together the Old Testament and the New Testament, especially in chapter 11. He says he's highlighting the heroes of the faith, and specifically Jacob, Israel. And look at what he notes. He doesn't note you know, Israel wrestling with God as his biggest act of faith. He's not, he's not talking about Israel being able to face Esau and have Esau forgive him. No, that's not his biggest act of faith. His biggest act of faith, by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshiped as he leaned on top of his staff. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us they would be made perfect. God had a plan. He knew that if he just blessed people in name, they would forget about him. He knew if that the people were not able to have a lived experience of what it means to be God's people, they would fall away. They would fall in love with his blessings, and they would leave him. They would abandon him because they only cared about the blessing. They only cared what God's name could get him. You know, it's like going to a room and saying, like, oh, the, oh I'm here to, you know, get some markers. And it's like, who are you? I don't know you like say in a classroom or something, but you say in the name of the teacher, right, in this teacher's name, or you wouldn't say it so dramatically, I don't know why you do that, but you say like, oh, you know, Mr. Shahoyan needs some markers, can you give some to me? And the, the, whoever is there will probably give it to you because the name has power. You know, they want that power in the name, but God wants you to be part of his family. That's the huge tension right there. You know, people just want God for the blessing that the family can give to him. He, they just want the inheritance, right? Throughout scripture, it's always talking about the son who only wants his father's inheritance and wishing that, you know, the father was dead. That's us. That's us. We do this. Yet God had a plan that if he could put together the name, the blessing in the name, and also the blessing in the lived experience together in one package, you know, how could he possibly do that? You know, who could possibly be able to deliver all of that to us? Now, who can be our family member who could give this blessing to us? You know, I think uh, you guys probably know who it is, but yeah, it's, it's Christ Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. 
And I'll explain to you why Jesus is the one who gives it to us. You might not have heard it this way before. So turn to Philippians 2, uh, verse 5 through 11. I'll just read through it really quickly. Um, Have this mind among yourselves. Yourselves being plural. So all all y'all selves. That's kind of what I'm saying. So amongst yourselves. uh, All y'all selves. Which is yours, plural, in Christ Jesus. Who, though, was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So observe. Maybe we have this hierarchy of things, the things that we consider the most important of all things. Right? Christ is above all of these things. He is the most important thing, and he is the thing that can bless us the most. So he deserves to be on top. You know, already that is like, oh, oh, Christ, most powerful. We should worship that. But the thing is, is that not only is Christ like this, but he flips it. He empties himself, and he gives himself to us, the people who are God's enemies the people who hate God. Now, I read a story once about the you know, 25th Battalion in um, was it Massachusetts. They were fighting in the Civil War. The thing is about them is that they were all black, that they wanted to free the other slaves, that they, want, they believed in the Civil War, and they wanted to fight for the North. But the people in the North, they didn't believe in them. They didn't want, you know, this black battalion to dishonor their name because they think that they're not any good. They're going to waste gunpowder. That's what they said. And then one of the generals, the person who you know, could have taken a higher position, who could have went above and beyond everyone else, maybe he would have been a great general if he hadn't stepped down and became their captain. You know, that general, eventually he'd be shot and killed in battle. And everyone mourned. Everyone said, wow, he could have been a great general if he, was, if he didn't lower himself to this battalion, if he didn't do this for these men. But here's the thing. Those are the types of men that we should honor. It's not the types of men that will strive to be the best, because anyone can be the best. Anyone can strive to be number one. We all have that desire in us. But the thing that makes us Christ-like the thing that gives us the name of Christ is being able to sacrifice being the best for the lowest person. Is giving that up so that other people who are being trampled on, that they are not trampled on and we are trampled on. That is the gospel. Christ did not come to condemn us, but he came to save us. That's what makes the power of the name. I'm not just you know, that's the, the second part. Whoops. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, uh, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, God, Jesus, man, dude, it's crazy. Jesus submits himself to God just kind of like how Israel submits himself to God so that their names are connected and that their names, you know, whatever Jesus does, 
No, it goes to the blessing of God. That's how we understand it. That's what it means. The reason why Jesus deserves to be on top isn't because he has all this power above us. Yes, he can do that, but he, has, he, he lowers himself below us. He cares for us. He loves you. He loves me. You know, he, he would give his life for you. He would give his life for me. And I think to myself, you know, if that is what it means to be a Christian, if that is what it means to be a person of God, then I need to give away, you know, my power, that struggle to be number one all the time. Because any person could do that. Anybody could have that desire and that enviousness and that pride to say, you know, I'm top student, or I, I wish I'm the best at, you know, university, or I wish, you know, all the girls never turned me down, or I wish I'm, I'm the funniest and the most smartest all the time. But here's the thing, you know, Christ would give all of those things away for us because he cares about us. And that's what makes it so that he deserves to have the name above all names. The thing is, is about our ideologies and our ideas, right? Throughout our lives, you know, I've got, you know, that's, oops, sorry, that's pretty much what it is. You know, I'll, I'll end with this, right? Christ gives himself to us so that we can be connected to God. He is that intermediate in-between space that we talked about, in-between life and death. He goes, dies, and resurrects for us, connecting us to God. He is the name above all names because he is both the highest and the lowest at the same time. He encompasses all of our ideas and all of our beliefs and everything that we hold dear, our family. Like, imagine if instead of Christ, we have something else on top that we consider the most valuable, that we consider the blessing that we want the most, money, power, fame, or maybe education, or a good family, or even love, something that's really great. If we put that at the highest, you know, the thing is, it will not survive because it cannot be at the highest and the lowest at the same time. It cannot possibly give itself in return for all the pressure that it bears. We cannot understand everything through the lens of love, right? We have to understand everything through the lens of Christ. You know, that's the struggle with our culture right now. We're struggling with names, you know, with names. Where do we come from? Where does our identity come from? What should be the most important thing that we should focus on? What, is the bless what do all our blessings come from? What should we look towards to be the highest? You know, think about, um, you know, I'll take a little bit of time for this. The thing about our ideologies, we might say that justice is the most important thing to us, right? We say justice. You know, a lot of people who, you know, like social justice, who like different types of justice, all consider justice to be the most important. But the thing is, is justice without grace, justice without Christ, only leads to continual guilt and deterioration, an endless cycle of abusing yourself. Like, what is a person supposed to do? If they feel guilty, you know, then you, they say, well, you should punish yourself. And you punish yourself and you still feel guilty, you continue to punish yourself. There is no end in those cycles. We may say that you know, science or math is the most possible, highest thing that we can ever achieve, that there's nothing real except math and science, that there's nothing real except you know, geometry or something. If you live in that world, well, too bad, because they already proved that you cannot prove whether or not math is real or not. That's Godel's theorem, right? It becomes cyclical, and we endlessly work through these things. 
We, we need Christ. We need to have faith in Christ. Because all of these things, whether it's justice or math or science or religion or any other thing, that is not Christ. If we don't put that, that is the name above all names, then we end up you know, stuck. We end up stuck because everything requires a leap of faith. To say that I believe that math is the highest thing that we can achieve, that math will answer all of our problems, or science is going to do that, or, you know, if we get all of justice correct, then the whole world will be okay. You know, saying that. Or if all we have is love, and all we need is love, is going to, everything is going to be okay, then, you know, we, we leave off a big portion of what it means to be Christian. The thing is, is that Christ does not abolish all of these things. Instead, Christ transcends these things. He looks at all of those things and he says, these things are good, but you have to look at them through my eyes, through the love that is able to sacrifice for the lowest, to consider their enemy the, the person to be loved. Because if you cannot love your enemy, then you will only continue to breed more enemies. For what Christ is doing, Christ is working in us, and Christ is working in the culture to heal us, to bring us towards God. We must continue the work. We must continue to work with God in order to bring this here, right? In order to bring the kingdom onto earth. Right now is a transitionary period. Right now we're in an in-between space. We're no longer, you know, just earthlings. We're no longer just people who haven't heard the gospel, but we're not yet in heaven yet. We're working on, you know, this in-between period between, you know, the beginning of the earth and the, the end of the earth. So we continue to work in this, but we need to have the energy, the faith, the patience, the love, the kindness in order to propel the message of Christ into the nations, to the people that we know, not because that we believe that this is an ideology or that we even have faith in it, but it's because you know this allows us to all share and to be able to play the game that allows us to you know, truly be in friendship and in true relationship with one another. Because if we're all playing our own little games that one person believes is just, you know, math is the most important or justice is the most important, then we're going to overlap against one another. And it might be violent. It might not be nice. It might not be loving. But at least with Christianity, at least with us, we'll say that we will love our enemies and we will sacrifice our love for, we'll sacrifice ourselves for those that don't even deserve it. And that's the power of Christ, that, you know, we were once his enemies, and he sacrificed himself for us. You know, I'm just beginning to repeat myself, so why don't we end? Sorry. Uh, so close your eyes and uh, bow your heads in prayer. Oh, Lord, Heavenly Father, um, I just really pray that during this time we're able to focus on you, that we're able to open up our hearts to you, to know that you are above all of us, above all things. Anything that we can place important does not even compare to you. Uh, teach us, God. Teach us, Father, how to be more and more loving, not so that we can have love as our idol, not so that we can be more loved, but so that we can be more like Christ. Place all of our affections in order. Place all of our thoughts in order. I pray that you straighten our paths and you make our feet quick. I pray that you give meaning into our lives. I thank you, Lord, for this time. It's been a privilege. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ooh. I don't know if that was early or late. I, I can't tell. <laughs>